0: How can there be a religion if no man has seen God and the purpose of religion is to see God? Isn't there a contradiction? There are basically two ways of seeing God. There is a direct way and a way in which our humanity is not burned up.
1: Today, we discuss your questions for Wolfgang Smith, which includes remarks around the various Vedantic realms of existence, in particular something called the Avi eternal and how does consciousness fit in, as well as not fit in, as well as the Western worldview. Or, as Wolfgang and myself like to call it, a Weltanschauung. This is part two of my discussion with Wolfgang, where we discussed his life, his corpus of rich philosophical insight, and his unexampled perspective on religion and interpretations of quantum mechanics. Wolfgang Smith is a mathematician, a physicist, and a philosopher of science who draws heavily from pre-modern ontology. He obtained his bachelor's in physics, mathematics, and philosophy simultaneously at Columbia University by the time he was just 18. Again, I've said that before in part one. I'll say it again here. It's unheard of. He was a mathematics professor at UCLA. He then worked at the Bell Aircraft Corporation as an aerodynamicist focused on providing a solution to the atmospheric re-entry problem. Wolfgang and I I'm extremely lucky and blessed that we were able to spend several days together in February. It was a humbling and endearing experience. Thank you to Brilliant for help subsidizing the cost, the traveling costs. You may not know this, but I pay out of my own personal pocket for every expense, such as flight fees, taxi fees, food fees, even subscriptions such as software tools, Adobe, for instance, the editor editing this right now, different capital like increased RAM and computers and so on. So help from yourself via Patreon, patreon.com slash Kurt Jimungle helps a tremendous, tremendous amount. And secondly, sponsors help a tremendous amount. Because of all of your support, we're able to bring Toe to you at zero cost. Like I mentioned, there's part one on the channel as well, and you can see how much Wolfgang and I bond. He holds a special place in my heart. In that part one, we go four hours toe-to-toe, so to speak. My name is Kurt jai My background is in mathematical physics, and this channel is called Theories of Everything. It's dedicated to explicating the variegated landscape of theories of everything, of Toes, primarily from a mathematical perspective, from a physics perspective, but we also explored the constitutive role consciousness may have in engendering the laws as we see them. Enjoy the next few hours with Wolfgang Smith, part two. Editor's note, as we rewatch this, we realize this is the inmost conversation with Wolfgang we've conducted, that we've heard. It surpasses even part one, which is also fantastic in our opinion. This is also echoed by Wolfgang Smith himself. So professor, how have you been? What's it been like since last we spoke? What's new? Well,
0: I've had a very busy, but very productive time. I've been interviewed on many programs and lots of opportunity to talk to people and to explain my ideas. So I'm very satisfied with how things have been going. And you just published a new article about consciousness. Yes. Well, I haven't published it yet, but I just wrote it. And uh, to be honest with you, I think it is one of the best things I've written. Uh, I've had a very productive time in recent weeks. And I feel it's now coming to an end. What do you mean? Well, I just had my 93rd birthday and... uh, which I never expected. Uh, no one in my family has ever lived that long. And uh, uh, all all things come to an end. Well, hopefully not terribly soon. I'd love to see you again in person. Well, I'll leave it all in God's hands.
1: What is the Omega Point?
0: Well, I think the expression goes back to Théa Deshardins, who was a very, very interesting character. And in fact, the second book I ever wrote was about Thierry de Chardin. He was a French Jesuit and a paleontologist. And he wrote many, many books, which had a, an enormous and incredible influence upon the Catholic world. And when for a while his books were on the index, eventually that only I think made them more interesting to the people. And uh, in the 60s his books became widely circulated and he exerted an enormous influence, I would say, on especially the younger generation of Catholic intellectuals, you might say. So much so that his influence upon the so-called Second Vatican Council was just incredible, and what, what really happened is that the Catholic world was split into two pieces. There were the traditional Catholics who were very happy with uh, the theology in existence. And then there was the younger generation, kind of revolutionary in their makeup, and they were powerfully under the influence of Théa Deschardins. And so, as everyone who's kept up with the story knows, the Second Vatican Council was a complete revolution the traditional theology was essentially thrown out and replaced by tears theology which i in my book characterized as quote a science fiction theory science fiction theology well Theatre Chardin was a fake, and I say that in all <laughs> candor, and, and I mean it, uh, because he had revolutionary ideas. Uh, you, you, you must grant him one thing at least. He, was, he didn't copy anyone else, he was totally himself, he, he saw everything in a new way. And, uh, it, it was, in my opinion, absolutely upside down. And, uh, it being the omega point? uh, His science fiction theology, I mean, the omega point was just one component of a completely new way of approaching theology. And I think... Many people saw it as a sort of integration of theology with uh, science, but in truth, it wasn't, it wasn't neither of the two. It was, it was a chimerical theology uh, somehow integrated with a chimerical science. Uh, Thea Tashadda is one of the greatest illusionists in the history of human thought, I believe. Can you talk about the Omega Point? What is it? Well, Thea Tashadda had this idea that the, that the physical universe itself is converging. He saw everything under the banner of evolution. That was, a, that was his God, really, and in fact, in the later part of his life, somewhere he wrote the following words, which have stuck in my memory because they really, in a sense, sum up his, his thinking. He said, in the final count, the, the one, the only thing that I believe in is evolution. So he believed, first of all, that the physical universe is itself evolving, everything is evolving, and uh, this evolution takes the form of a convergence of everything. To what he called point omega and this point omega he talked about it on the one hand in sort of physical terms in other words as if this is something that the physicist and astrophysicist should eventually discover because he he said this is what is happening everything converges and now, from a physical point of view, he happened to be about as wrong as wrong can be because we know that the opposite is true. There's an expansion. The universe, is its diameter, so to speak, is expanding at the speed of light, 300,000 kilometers per second. So, he was about as wrong as wrong could be from a physical point of view. There's no such... <laughs> Convergence to a point Omega, but he also, at the same time, saw this convergence to point Omega as a spiritual thing. Uh, he gave it a theological meaning. When they use that word, and what he was actually saying is that God himself is evolving and has not yet quite reached his ultimate perfection, which will be attained when everything converges to point omega. So in my book, I, develop, I devote many pages to, first of all, explaining what Teilhard was talking about. And secondly, showing the reader how absolutely absurd it is. It is absurd from the standpoint of science. There is no such conversion as I just said. The very opposite seems to be the fact. And secondly, from a uh, theological point of view, it is not. it is worse than nonsense it actually the bottom line is this it is diabolical and one of the things that I have written about in the book in the last chapter I look at the man I go into biographical uh, topics and in particular I came upon Mm a very unknown article that teard wrote when he was very very young it might have been his first publication it was written about 1925 and in that obscure article he relates an incident that happened to him when he was very young i mean he wrote it when he was about 30 years old or so, and the event, I think he was in his 20s when that happened. Well, he describes how he's walking one day in a lonely place somewhere in the countryside, and he said, and then the thing swooped upon me. So he speaks in this very strange way, and, and I asked the thing, Who are you? And the thing replied, quote, and this is now a verbatim quote, I am the quintessence of all good and all evil, and I am now uh, settled upon you in life and in death. And I'm not an exorcist, although I've known a great exorcist, But it is clear to me that this is evidence of possession. Many people nowadays don't know what this means and don't understand it. It is a very real thing. (laughs) Uh, What in theology is called Satan, or the devil in common language, is not an illusion. It's not just an old fable. it happens to be a truth a very important truth because uh i think one of the reasons satan is so successful especially nowadays is because he has succeeded in convincing the modern world that he doesn't exist and that makes him very very powerful so what i'm saying and this is what I said in the last chapter of my book on Thead de Shadang, what I'm saying is that Thead was possessed and that his doctrine, point omega and all the rest of it, is basically an ex-
1: written under
0: satanic influence.
1: Is Satan capable of telling the truth or can he only lie? Well,
0: I, I would guess that he is capable of saying the truth when he serves his purpose. So even if he says the truth, uh, it is for the purpose of spreading lies. But make, you, make no mistake about it. People nowadays tend not to understand that. The devil is not a fable, it's not a theological fantasy, it's as real and solid a reality as Mount Everest. And it is one of the greatest forces operating in the world, because it is really, in a sense, a counterforce to God. We all agree, no doubt, that God is all-powerful, and the prime power more powerful than anything else granted. But the negative of God, the negation of God, which we call Satan, comes in second place. And compared to our human power, the intelligence and the sheer power of Satan is boundless. This is one of the deficiencies, I believe, of contemporary "quote unquote" religion. I'm, I'm talking mainly to the Christian of the Judeo-Christian uh, branch of religion. That the idea of Satan has been pretty much lost. In earlier times, I think Christians were more keenly aware of the satanic side of the cosmos, and who were therefore more on God. Uh, I think the so-called demythologizing movement that Theod himself was, in a sense, uh, representing. Because he was destroying uh, orthodox, Christianity, Orthodox belief, and replacing it by that science fiction, a theology of his, which, as I say, was demonic.
1: Let's make an analogy. We are like a finite number, just a finite cardinality, and then there's satan which is the countably infinite and then there's god which is not only uncountably infinite but perhaps the highest of all the infinities like cantor studied them so even if satan compared to us is infinite is extremely powerful compared to god satan is nothing is that the case well
0: i don't think that from a theological point of view one can really think of it that way because uh If you look at the matter from a still higher perspective, it turns out, A, that Satan is necessary, and B, that unwittingly Satan is contributing to the work of God. The German poet Goethe has put it beautifully, and I think he's hit the Point. I, have, I won't quote it in in its original German, but the idea is that s- Satan is
1: necessary to try. Hear that sound. of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothys, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com/theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble, the more nicks, cuts, scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. Henson is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts for the International Space Station and the Mars Rover. Now they're bringing that precision engineering to your shaving experience. By using aerospace grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend less than the thickness of a human hair. The razor also has built-in channels that evacuate hair and cream, which make clogging virtually impossible. Henson shaving wants to produce the best razors, not the best razor business. So that means no plastics, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to dot com slash everything and use the code everything.
0: To mislead human beings is necessary as a counterforce to Christianity, a counterforce to God because it is by giving opposition to Satan that human beings grow. If there were no challenge, if religion were just like receiving chocolate and eating it, that's a human fantasy. This, this, would, this would never be Christianity. So uh, a negative force is needed to accomplish the will of God. So when you pray, do you ever give thanks for Satan? No, but uh, uh, it it would make sense. It would not be in any way amiss because Satan is there as a necessary ingredient. Uh, You see, you might naively and at the same time wisely ask the question, well, if God wants to give us this infinite gift, which we call salvation, eternal life, why doesn't he just give it to us? Instead of uh, letting us struggle in a world that is full of pain and misery, and also worse even than that, Carries within it, within it, the danger of damnation. Why, why has God so arranged it? Why doesn't doesn't He just give us whatever He has as a present, which ultimately it is, it is a present. Well, I think the answer to that is that God can do all things just by his own will. He can create the world and he has created the world by his own will. But there is one thing that God cannot do simply by his will. And that is, he cannot give us the highest gift, salvation, because salvation is somewhat akin to god himself and uh, this is something that simply cannot be given even god cannot do this if god could give us salvation just by his word i think it stands to reason that he would certainly do so why why make us suffer and why make us run the risk of damnation And that risk is there. Every Christian uh, teacher has uh, corroborated that. And the answer is, I believe, that salvation is, in a sense, a participation in, in the divinity. And this is something that cannot be just given. You have to earn it. I I wish I could do a better job um, getting that point across. It's something that I feel very deeply, but uh, I hope that these few words uh, are sufficient to indicate what I'm trying to express.
1: There's some views of God that God can do anything, including contradictions. So you don't believe this. There are some things God cannot do. Yeah,
0: yeah. He cannot uh, give salvation to an unrepentant murderer. So uh, the uh, ascent to God, the invitation from God to man, uh, come into my sphere, be one of us, enter the kingdom of God, that in, invitation cannot be given, so to speak, gratis. It is something that you have to, in some way, in, in some sense, earn. These things, of course, are hard to explain. We're dealing with supernatural things, and so it's very, very difficult to express it, and very difficult to understand whats what I'm trying to say, but I think the Christian uh, uh, listener will sense what I'm saying, and I think uh, he is likely to recognize that this is true.
1: Do you fear death?
0: As as a natural man, certainly, yes, certainly. Absolutely, because um, we are not yet... We have not reached the stage of sainthood. We've all read the lives of many, many saints. We have some idea of what they're like. And it is, in my belief, only in a high level of sainthood that the fear of death is transcended. It's not a simple thing. And ordinary Christian faith is wonderful, And it's a sine qua non, we need it, otherwise we have nothing. But it doesn't instantly elevate us to great spiritual heights. It's something that you have to work on a lifetime. And there are millions and millions of Christians of all denominations and grades, but only a handful in every generation reaches the level of true sainthood. And this is something, it's it's not a matter of degree, it's a matter of kind. It isn't that we have a numerical scale and then we say above this number it's sainthood. No, because sainthood is something uh, generically different from the ordinary condition of man. And uh, anyone who And incidentally, sainthood is rare, and in my life, I have met only one person who is bona fide a saint. And uh, he is as much different from any other person I've ever met in the world. It's uh, it's almost as if he were a different species. So uh, many Christians, I think, have somewhat inadequate ideas of what makes a saint a saint isn't simply somebody who is very very good and lives a very very good life he is that but that's not what makes him a saint what makes him a a sainthood is categorically different from the state from our ordinary state and uh, saints come in all shapes and guises and Uh, many different kinds of life they've lived. The saint that I had the privilege to see, I visited him. He has since been canonized, and his name is uh, Saint Padre Pio uh, of Pietralcina. Anyhow, he was a Capuchin monk, He spent his life in a monastery, San Giovanni Rotondo in southern Italy. And the most remarkable thing about him was that when he was a young priest, on a certain Friday, he said Mass, and while he was saying Mass, he experienced great pain, and at the end of mass he noticed that he had the so-called stigmata that is the wounds of of Christ five wounds two in the hands two in the feet and one so these five wounds of Christ were manifest in his body this is called the stigmata so so he was the first priest in history who received the stigmata and he received it at an early age, I think he was in his 20s. And this the stigmata remained on him for 50 years. They came on a Friday and they left on a Friday. And two days after the stigmata disappeared f- from his body, he died. So it was evidently his mission, so to speak, to suffer. Yeah and he suffered terribly. That was his mission. So it it is so difficult for a non-Christian to understand all this because it is so contrary to our normal human way of looking at things and what we desire and what we shun. So I'm saying all these things just to make the point that sainthood is a very real thing. It's a very... uh, a uh, wonderful thing, it is almost always associated with great pain and suffering uh, preceding the, the miracle of sainthood and oftentimes also after that miracle has occurred. So a saint uh, is someone who, as it were, uh, in some minuscule way repeats the life of Christ in his own body and uh, the all grades and so the example of Padre Pio which I mentioned it's a very extreme example but uh, that's why it is it is helpful in our attempt to understand what what sanctity is it's a very real thing and it's a discontinuity in other words in our ordinary state, we're far, far from s- s- sainthood, we can't even imagine it, much less live as saints live. But we can understand, we can appreciate what sanctity is. It is becoming somewhat, in some minuscule way, like Christ, it is always a s- associated with suffering you do not uh, attain any higher spiritual grade just in in, in, in fun no it's it's very se- a very serious business and pain and suffering as i say is somehow a sine qua non in this man's journey to god Uh, many people and I think there are also many people who call themselves Christian and think they are uh, Christian who uh, do not really accept this fact because it goes so much against our human desire we don't want to suffer and uh, for example if you practice certain abstinence uh, during Lent or so. We as human beings, uh, we do it sort of reluctantly. It goes against our brain. Mm-hmm. And that is exactly why it is spiritually uh, efficacious, because uh, a religion is to go against that natural brain.
1: Something I've been thinking about is we say, well, what is a saint, or what is a theory of everything, what is a so-and-so, and then I wonder, well, what is, is? What does is mean? You've got me there, Good.
0: I I've never thought about that. I realized that it is a very, very deep question, one of the deepest questions. So, as I understand it, it's the same as
1: asking what is being. That's right. Part of the definition has to do with being has to do with the sava. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, which is an Eastern concept. And so the word is that we use scientifically and secularly actually has the deepest religious roots. Absolutely. In fact,
0: it reminds me of a passage in the Old Testament, Exodus 3.14. And let me remind you what, what that is. It is It pertains to the uh, episode of Moses and the burning bush. Moses, uh, I forget the outer details, uh, he sees a burning bush and he asks, the question, he he realizes this must be the presence of God here, it was something miraculous. And so Moses uh, asked uh, God his name. He said, what is your name? And the answer that came was, to put it in Latin, ego sum qui sum, which literally means I am, that is I I am so here you have the answer to your question about is uh, this is basically what Moses asked God the episode of the burning bush and God's answer to that question was ego sum key sum so there is no being strictly speaking other than God and the creation is sort of a I would say a half being a semi-being you cannot say of anything in creation for example of ourselves uh, that it it is God alone can say that strictly speaking I cannot say I am because from a rigorous metaphysical point of view, this isn't really true. We have a certain being, but we—it it is not sufficient to say I am, because in truth only God can say that. And this is, of course, the the whole purpose of our religious quest if you want to put it in very very metaphysical terms we are seeking to be we are sort of in a halfway state now incidentally the Vedic tradition has understood this very well this is why they speak of Maya because uh, every every Brahmin boy in India used to understand that we we are we are not fully we we do not fully exist and uh, this is of course the message that you got from buddha uh is perhaps the first historical figure that gives us this message and then it was the message of the vedic sages for thousands of years and it is absolutely in keeping with exodus 314 as a matter of fact i think uh, when i think back of the india that i witnessed 50 years ago i think the people that i knew there would understand better exodus 314 than our theologians in the west because they're more rooted in these fundamental teachings
1: when someone says, I am John, I am Mary, I am Carlos, what do you mean that they can't say I am? Well, uh, in ordinary parlance,
0: of course, I am has a very simple meaning that we all understand once we are uh, no longer an infant. But uh, this theological or metaphysical uh idea of being is something else and in fact you know uh, could there is a a hard and fast distinction between two levels of understanding religion and that applies to Christianity or any other religion that may exist there's an ordinary simple way of understanding that every child can understand. And there is a deeper understanding, an understanding which many uh, people belonging to that religion uh, never attain. And I I will give you an example of that. One of my absolutely favorite theologians is St. Augustine. And St. Augustine wrote a sort of an autobiography, which he called The Confessions. And one of the chapters of The Confessions begins with these words. I, I, I like it so much that I, I even know them by heart. He's speaking to God, and he says, I, th- I see these others beneath thee, an existence they have because they are from thee, yet no existence because they are not what thou art. I love that saying. Uh, it is pure esotericism because... Many people simply won't understand what he's talking about. And it can be misinterpreted? It can certainly be misinterpreted. But when you uh, do uh, even vaguely sense what St. Augustine was saying there, it is profound. It is absolutely esoteric. And incidentally, what saint augustine was saying in this particular statement is something that the people in india the people who are rooted in the old indian tradition assuming there are still such people left they would understand it far better than most of us here in christianity because the vedic tradition has been harping on that theme for thousands of years This is the idea of Maya, Uh, the things of the world, including ourselves as in our phenomenal existence, both are and are not. In a sense, we are because we are from God. Otherwise, in no wise would we exist.
1: And yet, we are not because... Hear that sound? Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories.
0: God alone really is.
1: So we are sort of in between Being and non-being. Interesting, because when last we spoke, someone asked, I read the question of, is God both being and non-being? And you said yes. So, at the same time, we are both being and non-being. Excuse me, uh,
0: Could uh, Let me try to understand what I said last week, because it doesn't really sound like me to say that, that God is both being and non being. Yeah, well I can reread the question for you. Please do, because I, at the moment I don't quite say understand what I was
1: what I meant to say. This question comes from Matthew Wyden. He said, Western religions talk about reality as being ultimately the supreme being, an inexhaustible intelligence sentience, whereas St. Maximus joined these and said, God is both being and non-being. So what do you think about these different ways of describing reality? And then you said, St. Maximus was right, that God is both being and non-being. Or maybe in the context of the question, you meant something else, or there was more there. Well, I... uh...
0: I understand now what I was trying at least to say and it is this that uh, God is beyond our conception of being uh, one might say this is all you know on earth and all you need to know right. but it does not exhaust God because God is inexhaustible, and so uh, the, I was a moment ago distinguishing between esotericism and the ordinary way of understanding religion. I should add that there are different levels of esotericism. I mean, it uh, and in a sense, uh, esotericism has no boundaries Uh, however high you have gone in our in your conception of God there's always more and uh, you never can reach the point where you said well now I know who God is that is impossible and in fact anyone who says this gives proof of the fact that he has a long way to go Uh, I think there have been great spiritual masters who would simply say God is inexpressible if you ask me uh, I cannot tell you there's a wonderful story in one of the Upanishads uh, a man has two sons, and he send, when they come of age, he sends them, as used to be the custom, to a guru. So these two sons spend the next few years away from the father and mother in the house of the guru. And so then they come back after a few years to the father, and the father says to them, well, tell me, son, what have you learned about God? And so the older son gets up and explains to the father what he has learned and gives a very beautiful, learned lecture of Vedanta about Saguna Brahman and Nirguna Brahman and so on. And the father listens and says nothing. And then he turns to the younger son and says, young son, tell me what have you learned? And this young man speaks not a word and just lowers his ha- head in silence. And the father is pleased. He says, "Ah, you have had a glimpse of Brahman." I, I love this story because I think it tells something that is very, very important, in, a, in the most perfect way of all. Not trying to s- express it directly, but
1: By implication, it makes it all that more powerful. This reminds me of another story from early Christendom. I forget which one of the church fathers said this. There was three disciples, or three sons, and they were being asked, okay, explain, what does St. Paul mean in this verse? And then the first son says, oh, he means going up to the mountain is like ascending toward God and you should praise the kingdom of heaven and so on. And then he's like, good, good, okay, interesting. What about you? And then the other one says, well, actually, it's about moving away from temptation and we should be careful in our everyday life and not stray on a path. He says, interesting. He goes to the next one and says, well, what do you think? That person says, I don't know. And then he said, that's right. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha. That is beautiful, yeah. Yeah. Well, you're
0: right, Kurt. This is really quite equivalent to the story that I've just told you from one of the Upanishads. There is much, much in common between uh, Christianity and the Vedic tradition. Vedic tradition is the oldest in the world and so old that you can't... I think it's really difficult to date it, but (laughs) it was centuries before Abraham was born. So this is the oldest wisdom in the world, and it is a tremendous wisdom. Mm -hmm. But uh, what amazed me in my later life when I began to think about Christianity and the Vedic tradition is that actually what Christ brought into the world is brand new, And not a trace of it is to be found in the Vedas. And I was very surprised because earlier in life I felt this was a complete revelation. If you want to find anything in the domain of wisdom, well, you'll find it there. Not true. I mean, for example, the story of Adam and the fall of Adam, uh, which... Is of course basic to Christianity. Uh, Christ is the second Adam, if you will. Uh, you find not a trace of this in any of the Vedas. It—I it, didn't recognize this until very, very late in life, and it was—I was amazed. And incidentally, it was last year that I finally wrote a book trying to put the Vedic and the Christian religion in perspective and to, as it were, indicate what they have in common and what is brand new in Christianity. And uh, so I published this book under the title Vedanta in Light of Christian Wisdom and I say almost the opposite of what is nowadays, so to speak, trendy, uh, because, yes, uh, Schuon had this notion of the transcendent unity of religions and the idea that different religions are different paths up to the same mountain peak. uh, This is absolutely wrong. I'm convinced of it, and this is what is the main thesis that I present in this book. And in fact, I show that uh, the eschaton, the Vedic eschaton, what I call the Nirvanic option, is in a way the, di- the diametric opposite of the Christian eschaton. And the point is really. Uh, very easy to understand, you know, f- from a formal point of view. And that is that both the Vedic religion and the Christian religion are ways to God. Uh, I mean, the uh, the eschaton uh, is always a union with God, if
1: you will, a scene. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothys, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com/theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash theories.
0: Oh God.
1: But there are two
0: kinds and they are completely different. The Vedic seeing, excuse me, let me back up. I want to first of all quote St. Saint, Saint John no man has ever seen god so uh, this is basic and this is the first thing one needs to understand so then how can for example how can a how can there be a religion if no man has seen god and the purpose of religion is to see god isn't there a contradiction and The point is that the idea of religion is very subtle. There are basically, as it turns out, two ways of seeing God. Only two ways. There is a direct way, which is a way of self-annihilation. Always, to see God, you you must do a sacrifice. You must offer something to the flame. That's
1: different than suicide. Different, yes. Please, explain the difference just to get it clear to people before you move forward. Well, if a man commits
0: suicide, it is not in order to see God. The motive of suicide is things are so bad I can't cope with them anymore or or. Just craziness. No, religion is a matter of man offering sacrifice for the purpose of seeing God. And there are basically two ways. Uh, I mean, you can see on logical grounds that there can only be two ways. Now, the Vedic is the direct path. And so, the only way uh, you can attain the, the vision of Brahman is to sacrifice your humanity. And this is why the sadhus in India wear a Geroa robe. India is a land that burns its dead, and so the garo color. The color is the color of flame. So what the garua robe of the sadhu means is that he has really offered his life, offered himself to the flames as a sacrifice for the vision of God. And having lived with these sadhus, I spent seven months uh, living with them. This was decisive in my life, because it, it just gave me a little glimpse of the higher truth. And so, uh, this is the Vedic iskaton. I call it the nir- nirvanic option. Now, nirvana is a Buddhist word. It means blowing out like a candle flame. And uh, I, I use it because, to me, it is the most descriptive way, the most, perhaps perfect way of explaining uh, the eskaton of the vedic tradition it is a blowing out and therefore we cannot conceive of it if you ask any wise man uh, what what is the end state what ha- how does the perfect yogi who has reached the end of the vedic paths successfully what what happens to him it is a question that absolutely cannot be answered, simply because there are no words for it. Uh, uh, I mean, if you, <laughs> Sri Krishna would put it this way, he would say, uh, uh, if you've never tasted a mango, you never will know what it means to taste a mango. There are no words that can describe it. So, this is the Vedic iskaton. It's a Nirvanic, and incidentally, uh, I've seen in India people very, very close to that state. And all I can say is, even looking at these people, experiencing their ambience, you realize what a tremendous thing it is. And I think one of the reasons that I benefited from these associations is because instinctively, I approached them with folded hands. Yep. And this is why I received, because all I could give them is my, my admiration, my uh, mm-hmm. reverence. And that was enough. No real sadhu in the Vedic tradition will not generously give to anyone who approaches him like that. So it's a wonderful thing. If we had time together, unfortunately, we don't. Could tell you some very interesting things. Well, next time, next time. God willing, yes. So this was the Vedic Eskaton. Now the Christian Eskaton is the diametric opposite. And the fact is this, when Christ was born, with a long, long time after the Vedic religion was already well-established, he brought into the world ideas and realities which were entirely new, had never been conceived of before. And so, the first thing he brought into the world is the doctrine of the Holy Trinity three persons in one a Godhead. And there is no trace of that in India. The, the Vedas, the Upanishads have nothing to say about uh, God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Ghost. So this Trinitarian conception of God, which of course all of Christianity rests upon that, is nowhere to be found in the Vedas. Number one. Secondly, uh, God, uh, Christ revealed the mystery of the incarnation. So, the uh, Trinitarian conception of God tells mankind that there is a Son of God and it is based upon this principle that our Lord was able to ex- to reveal the second principle that this son of God could become man and so you have the, the virgin birth and the, uh, the mystery of the incarnation God become man and then you have of course the mystery of the mission of christ the suffering the crucifixion the three days in the tomb and the resurrection and now it is at this point that a new religion was brought into the world because And here is the idea of the Christian Eskaton, which as I say is the diametric opposite of the Vedic. The point is, we can attain a union with the incarnate God, because the incarnate God is human, he is a man. And so there is a possibility of entering into the mystical body of Christ. And this is what it means to be a christian and you enter through baptism and through faith and then because you are a member of the mystical body of christ there is a possibility of seeing god through christ and there's a passage in the what we call the high priestly prayer, where our Lord explains this very idea very precisely. He's speaking to God the Father, and he says, quote, This is life eternal, to know thee, the one true God, and Jesus Christ who was sent. Here you have a perfect, accurate, and complete description of the Christian Eskaton. It is a seeing of God, but antipodal to the Vedic. We do not need to burn our human identity. No, as as a human being, We can see God the Father through Jesus Christ. And so, Christ brought into the world a new eschaton, a new way of uh, seeing God, a way in which our humanity is not burnt up. It took me half a lifetime to gain whatever clarity I have on this subject. And I was tremendously relieved when it occurred to me, when I finally discovered that the Christian is is not the Vedic. Uh, Shuon was absolutely wrong. Uh, I don't want to talk about any other religions. The two religions that deeply interest me is the Vedic and the Christian. And I realize that I have no doubt about that. These are antipodal Escata. The only life eternal that is possible is a, quote, seeing of God. There's no other eternity that is remotely possible. But the point is there are two ways of, quote, seeing God. The direct way, which is the Vedic, and it's, it's a bona fide way. I mean, uh, the perfection of the Vedic path is rare, but I think in India uh, there has hardly been uh, a generation without uh such events occurring so it's it's a real thing and it's still going on even today i'm sure but with the birth of christ or more accurately if you will with his resurrection a new religion came into the world and this is christianity it offers us the a life eternal as human beings our humanity is becomes in a certain sense deified through union with christ and that means with his mystical body so this is all i know about religion this is uh and as i said i wrote this last book about this subject uh, the main purpose was to combat this perennialist philosophy which has I, I, I think it's correct to say that as things stand now, the the most intellectual people all over the world are perennialists. If you uh, talk to people of high intellectual achievement and as supposing that they have been interested in the subject of religion you will find in all likelihood that they are perennialists that they believe in the so-called uh, transcendent unity of religions which is a completely heretical notion
1: why do you call the av eternal av eternal instead of eternal well because the uh,
0: idea of the tripartite cosmos in which the highest level is beyond space and time. This is the crux of the matter. Well, uh, this is a kind of eternity, but it needs to be distinguished from the eternity of religion, the eternity of uh the, For example, the eternity which the Christian speaks of when he says that uh, God is eternal and heaven is eternal. So eternity in that sense uh, is uh, more than the eternity because actually one of the crucial ways in which Christianity differs from the Vedic teaching is that the Vedic teaching regards the cosmos as cyclic. Mm-hmm. It goes on and on like a sine curve, it has no beginning and no end. And the Christian uh, cosmology is radically different, because it is integral to the Christian tradition that at the second coming of Christ, which no man knows the day and the hour, the cosmos in its entirety will be destroyed. So the the, the difference between the Vedic outlook and the Christian is that in the vedic outlook the cosmos has no end in both senses in the sense of a purpose and end in the sense of a termination so in the vedic way of looking at the cosmos there's neither a a purpose yeah uh, because <laughs> the only answer the a vedic guru could give to the question what is what is the purpose of the cosmos there is none the vedic spiritual practice tries essentially to get out of this cosmos because the, the vedic wisdom says this is not god this is not reality and Uh, The purpose of life is to gain union with God. So, you see, in this Vedic philosophy, the cosmos plays no role. Uh, The cosmos has no purpose. And also, ipso facto, if you will, it has no ending either. In the Vedic tradition, the cosmos is without beginning and without end. And finally, the Vedic masters will tell you that in fact it's unreal. Why, when you see a snake in, in the rope, uh, how can you, uh, why, why should you ask, where does this snake come from, why is it there, and so forth, save yourself the trouble and realize that there is no snake this is the vedic approach it's quite different from the christian the christian says a yes the cosmos has its reality it was put there for by god and it was put there for a purpose it's like a school Uh, a school is there to teach the students And once that is done, uh, the school has no more purpose. Uh, If there were only one student in the world and one school, as soon as this student graduates, you don't need the school anymore. So therefore, in the Christian religion, uh, the cosmos itself will come to an end. It'll end when it has fulfilled its purpose. And all of this, you see, is radically different from the Vedic way of looking at things.
1: I have a question now from Matt Siegel, who you spoke to on his channel called Footnotes to Plato. Oh, yes. He is a process
0: theology, the Whitehead scholar.
1: Right, right. So this question is in line with that thinking. If God does not evolve or change in any relation to actual history or the world, then how are we to understand said history, including our own lives, as anything other than an illusory falling away from and forgetting of what is real?
0: Well, I think the premise of uh, what Matt Siegel is saying here is something that is more in line with the Vedic than with the Christian way of thinking. So I, I, I think... In essence, I have answered this very question precisely by what I said just now. When I, In explaining the difference between the Vedic way of looking at the cosmos and the Christian, I think that does answer the question. From the Vedic point of view, uh, the question is absolutely justified. The Christian point of view is different.
1: Some atheists will say, hey, this is real. So we see this, but regardless, we have a world that exists, a world that is real. And then they ask, well, is God real? And it sounds like from what you were saying earlier, we have it backward. God is way more real.
0: Absolutely. That is the whole point. God is more than real as we understand and are capable of understanding reality. This is why uh, religion, true religion, is simply above what we nowadays call philosophy or what we nowadays call science. Um, If we cannot go beyond that level, uh, we don't really know what religion is all about. And whatever we think it is, and whatever we call it in our conversation, it is all like smoke. It isn't there. (laughs) Goethe: Schall und Rauch. Sound and smoke. Uh, This is why most, so to speak, discussion or arguments about religion are completely pointless and lead nowhere, because even to talk about religion uh, sensibly, uh, one needs to, in a, in a sense, avail oneself of the tradition. Uh, if, if there were no Vedas and there were no uh, gospel, uh, or the New Testament, uh, there would be no religion, and uh, the word would mean nothing, and whatever people talk would be just talk. So... In a sense, one might say that you need to believe in order to believe. It sounds paradoxical. And incidentally, Christ himself has said as much when he said, He who has, to him shall be given. And he who has not, from him shall be taken away, I think, the little that he has. But he who has, to him shall be given. In other words, uh, on the level of the ordinary atheist, such as you find uh, wherever you look almost in our civilization, these people can neither affirm religion or deny it. The point is, the idea of religion is something that is not in them. So it doesn't matter whether they say, I believe this or I don't believe this, because it's just talk. It's just talk, he who has to him shall be given, which means that in a certain sense, there must be a religious spark in us. If there is not, we cannot, we cannot enter there. So you, of course this raises a problem, obviously, uh, where does this religious spark come from? Uh, do some people have it? Other people not. If they don't have it, they are not responsible for not being religious and so on. You can, you can go speak about this and think about it from now to eternity. It's just sound and. He who has to him shall be given, and this is a mystery we cannot understand. Uh, why does it? happen that some have and some obviously do not i don't know this is god knows this is not anything that i based upon the worldly understanding that i may have i have a phd in this and that okay but that's beyond all that this is why the christian needs to follow the words of christ almost blindly we can't understand it we can't justify it but our situation is this we are like somebody swimming in the middle of an ocean sharks all around we don't know when one of them is going to come and swallow us up and someone comes and throws you a rope and says come aboard you will be healed and warmed and fed and taken to your home. And you say, well, that sounds that sounds very well, but where do you come from? Where's the boat? Where are you going to take us? Well, chances are good the sharks are going to eat you up before you ever get half through this. This sounds like the parable of the poison arrow of Buddha. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Right, I had forgotten about that, yeah. So this is really our situation. Uh, And it's a mystery, I mean, look at all the people, millions and millions of people, and actually in today's Western world, uh, only a minority, A, believe in God, B, want to follow God, and three, do follow God, To a certain degree only a handful it's so strange so this is another question I don't know the answer to that and I only know one thing that's not my business my business is to follow Christ as well as I am able based upon his teaching and with the help of is authentic church. That's all I need to do. That's all I can understand. Will God always catch us when we fall? That's a very difficult question
1: because if if you if you answer yes, it sounds like nihilism because it doesn't matter what you do, you'll be saved. So yeah,
0: you can't as a Christian you cannot say yes because we know. Uh, uh, that damnation is a real thing. In other words, religion, true religion, is not without
1: risk. Have you heard this phrase, hell is a door locked from the inside? It means that at any point you have the opportunity to get out.
0: I, I cannot affirm that. I can neither affirm nor deny it. I don't see anywhere... In Scripture, that Christ has given us an instruction based upon which this can be affirmed. And if you uh, take seriously what the saints have, have had to say, I think you can find instances where testimony has been given contrary to this position. It would be very nice, but, you know, the path to God is not without danger. We're talking about realities here, not pipe dreams. And so, it's like climbing a mountain. Yes, you may reach the summit, but even, even within a few feet of the summit, you can lose your footing and fall to your death there is risk it's real do you believe in free will oh definitely if there were no free will there could be no religion in other words uh, to attain union with god to attain salvation to to enter the kingdom of heaven there is not only a cost, there is a risk. Uh, God can, has the power to give us all things, but there is one thing that he cannot simply give us. I needn't tell you what that is. He cannot give us salvation just, here it is, my child, no. This is the one and only thing that God cannot do. And incidentally, I forget who it was. Some great Christian saint uh, made this point. I didn't invent that. Oh, I remember where I read this. There's a wonderful book written by an Eastern Orthodox priest, uh, Losky Last name of his was Lofsky. And he, his books are beautiful. I've read them with great, great uh, benefit. And somewhere he explains that there is one thing and one thing only that God cannot do. It takes one will, this is what he says, and I thought that was beautiful. He says, it takes one will to create, but it takes two wills to give salvation this is this is the whole thing uh the one thing god cannot do he cannot simply give one of his creatures salvation because salvation is so great
1: that you have to will it too how does free will comport with knowing that there's a timeless realm so that you can see all of what occurs through time. But then if we exist as a moment in time and we're trying to plan something for the future and we have free will, how do we have free will when from another perspective all our choices have been made or all of it can be seen?
0: Well, I think there's only one answer to that question. And that is that free will pertains to our present state, which is a state of half-knowing. Once we attain enlightenment,
1: there's no question of free will. You know. Sorry, enlightenment is the same as salvation or is that different?
0: Well, I think nothing short of salvation uh, would put you into that state where there's no more free will. There's no more free will because there is no more will in our sense
1: of the term. Love is what makes things real. What do you make of that quote?
0: Well, I think it is based upon one of the deepest teachings of Christ. Uh, Saint John the evangelist in, in his, I forget what it is called, his letters not his, not the gospel, but his letters. He says, Deus caritas est. God is love. So love in the authentic sense that we're using the term now is itself divine. It is God. It's not something that God makes, something that God creates. Well, There is love in that sense too, but love in its highest purest sense is
1: uh, inseparable from God. What's your disagreement with the Gnostics? Well,
0: I take it that you use the term Gnostic in its true historical sense. So Gnosticism was So, to speak, in antiquity, the counter religion to Christ. So, there were uh, Gnostic gurus all over the ancient world. They saw themselves as
1: Christian, though, correct or no?
0: Well, I don't know their psychology, and I don't even want to delve into it. The characteristic, there are certain characteristics of Gnosticism that one needs to bear in mind first of all they were antagonists to the death of christianity they despised christianity whether they you know manifested that or didn't uh, that was integral in other words if you will they belonged to satan they were satan's satan's men and secondly they uh, had an idea of a flight into higher worlds. There was all kinds of teachings and all kinds of methods of attaining that higher flight. And so their idea was that the sumum bonum of life is to get out of this world they rejected it as utterly evil and, uh, in every way, disgusting, revolting, and the the thing to do is to leave it, get out of here, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, actually, the way they conceived their. Uh, higher world, their sumum bonum, is really secondary. The important thing about the Gnostics is that everything pertaining to this world and all the good things, they regarded as the very opposite uh, they had disgust for it. For example, uh, a Gnostic is uh, a... Natural, um, what is the word? Uh, he likes to dishonor everything that the followers of God regard as sacred. So he would love to take, say, a holy Bible and throw it into the sewer. He wants to destroy. And to him, everything here in this world is evil. And uh, he has a sort of a dream castle in the sky, which is his goal, his heaven, his eschaton. That's, in a few words, the main characteristic of the ancient, uh, uh, the ancient Gnostics. And they came in all different colors and guises. And what I have said is, so to speak, the common denominator. They differed very, in fact, one of the early Christians said, every day, every one of them invents something new. So you you can't define Gnosticism by giving it, a, a, so to speak, a credo, because uh, they had all different beliefs and theories, the common denominator which is the only way of defining them was this idea that everything here everything that we normally hold as sacred or beautiful or holy is somehow trash they spit on it they are uh,
1: you see uh, the, the, the they did they follow other books of the bible that we don't consider canon I
0: don't know that much about it. There's for, I have never, I mean, for example, I've read the so-called uh, unauthoritative Gospels, the Gospel. Thomas, Mary. Yes, I've read some of these. What do you make of them? You don't like them? Well, there's, there's, there are good things in it, but I uh, there's quite a bit that you can learn from it. But... The mere fact that the church fathers have not included this in the official teachings of our Lord uh, makes me instinctively keep away from it. Why read something that does not have the imprimatur of Christianity when we have these wonderful books that does carry the imprimatur so firstly we have scripture holy scripture the old and new testament and secondly we have the writings of uh, the of the saintly teachers of the faith we have a saint augustine we have a saint maximus the confessor Uh, We have boundless literature of high rank of course Scripture is one thing, everything else is, is another. This division is absolute. But we, the point I'm trying to make, we have such wonderful scripture, why read uh, something that is in any way questionable, like the Gospel of Thomas? Because uh, who, who knows, there may be innuendos there that are not really orthodox. And there's no need also to go beyond scripture and uh, approved writing of the saints and the recognized teachers of the church. So, uh, I'm sorry. Oh, we were talking about the Gnostics, right. So what I want to say now is this. Uh, It turns out that with the end of antiquity the middle ages and then the beginning of the modern age a very interesting thing happened Gnosticism morphed it changed its out, out of form and turned into what I call neo Gnosticism and the difference between the ancient Gnosticism and the neo-Gnosticism is this. Uh, I I said that an integral part of Gnosticism is the idea of this journey into higher worlds. Uh, The the problem that the Gnostics uh, faced with the dawn of the modern age is that we no longer accept any higher worlds. So uh, the problem was very, very uh, drastic. How can you fly into higher worlds when there are no more higher worlds to fly into? This was the problem. And by golly, they solved it. And do you know how they solved it? It's really interesting and ingenious. This all comes from Satan, and Satan is very ingenious. No, no question about that. So the neo-gnostic solv- uh, uh, way of solving this problem that there are no more higher worlds to fly into is very simple. They said the higher world is futuristic. In other words, the, this world itself is being turned into a The higher world so the higher world became futuristic like worshiping technology or thinking that yes it's exactly and as a matter of fact who is the neo-gnostic prophet of modern times thea deshada there's no question about it thea deshada is so to speak the the great gnostic guru Of the present age. This is also why he had tremendous power, because the devil has power. Let no one be in doubt about that, he has great power. In fact, the power of Satan is so great that unless we, we humans, avail ourselves of the sacred means given to us by God, we have no chance of withstanding that
1: power this is a quote from david boehm in the ontological theory wholeness manifests from a notion of non-locality a notion that is seemingly denied by relativity why were david boehm's observations profound well
0: he was certainly right that uh There is a wholeness in the cosmos which uh, which manifests as non-locality. And in fact, the last Nobel Prize of Physics, the 2022 Nobel Prize of Physics, as you know, was awarded to three physicists who conducted crucial experiments, I think in the 80s, to determine which of the two physical theories is right, quantum theory or relativity. The the recognition, which has been made long ago, but people are very reluctant to to, own up to it. The recognition is that relativity theory and quantum theory cannot both be true. And it was an experiment to determine which of the two uh, is true was in fact conceived by Einstein himself and uh, it hinges upon what is nowadays called Bell's inequality. And in the 80s, I think it was three experimenters did the experiment and the results clearly and definitively uh, stand on the side of quantum theory. And it's it, to me, it is a rather interesting phenomenon. I would say it's a sociological phenomenon that... Logically speaking, uh, these experiments, based upon an idea, going back to Einstein himself, of course, Einstein proposed that experiment because he thought it would vindicate relativity versus quantum theory. Uh, uh, Einstein was uh, very critical of quantum theory. He spoke uh Ironically, what he called spookhafte Fernwirkung, spooky action at a distance, which he never accepted because actually it contradicts relativity theory. And uh, lo and behold, these experiments, the chief name involved in these experiments is the Frenchman Alain. Al- Alain? Alain, yeah. Anyhow, uh, The experiments clearly, unequivocally uh, uh, came out on the side of quantum theory versus relativity. And to me, it is so interesting. There is a kind of mystery about Einstein and Einsteinian physics. He's almost like a god, and uh, we continue to believe in his theory, even after it's been disproved, And after a Nobel prize has endorsed this disproof it's a very strange phenomenon we could talk about this another day a very interesting story there i regard it as a kind of a mystery something that i don't understand if i were young i would love to spend a few years digging into this there is something there that would be very interesting to know anyhow uh relativity theory has been disproved it is not a valid theory but somehow nobody wants to say these words uh, it is something like a an elephant in the room nobody wants to uh, admit it so i don't know the answer to this but it's an interesting question and let me say in this connection because it Uh, is certainly very, very prevalent, very pertinent, I mean. I've always been interested in Platonism, and I've thought about it a lot in my life, and in recent times I have uh, demonstrated that Platonism entails a tripartite division of the cosmos the highest is beyond space and time this is the av eternal realm that's what i call every
1: before we continue to be clear av eternal is a subset of eternal or distinct from is distinct from because the point is this
0: what evit ter- ev- eternity and eternity are not the same thing and the distinction goes back to saint thomas aquinas i don't Know of anyone else who's made that distinction, but the distinction is this: that if eternity pertains to the cosmos, it is the highest of three ontological strata, characterized by the fact that it is subject neither to space nor to time. And what? is then what, what, what is the difference between eternity and eternity? Well, let me point out that according to Christianity, the cosmos itself will cease at the second coming of Christ. It is there for a purpose, and when that purpose in God's time is achieved, the cosmos will be no more. This is what... Christianity calls the parousia, the second coming of Christ. And if eternity and eternity were the same, then when the cosmos disappears, God and all else would disappear too, which of course is absurd. And this is why eternity and eternity are not the same thing.
1: I still don't understand. So eternity means timelessness or infinite temporal duration? Which one is it? Eternity means you exist forever or it means you're distinct from time? Eternity, uh, the
0: the adjective eternal can apply to any reality which is not subject to time. But but eternity, I, I, I hope I didn't misspeak, What I wanted to say is that if eternity applies to any state not subject to time. Nor space. But yes, no space either. And the reason that if eternity is not the same as eternity is because according to Christianity, the universe, the world, the creation, uh, itself will cease at the second coming of Christ. This is a mystery of what Christianity calls the parousia. And incidentally, as you can imagine, this is a tough nut for the contemporary uh, theologian uh, influenced by our contemporary science uh, because science cannot conceive of such a thing and implicitly denies the parousia but the teaching of the parousia is integral to the teaching of christianity our lord speaks of it very very explicitly he and he says so that this parousia will come but he says that The day and the time is known only to my father. So it's a mystery. We have no idea when this parousia will come, but we have it on the authority of Christ himself and the church that it will come. So this is the fundamental difference of outlook between the Vedic cosmology and the Christian. The Vedic cosmology regards the cosmos perfectly so the Vedic is eternal no uh, it is not in fact the Vedic has no concept of eternity because uh, it has it does not distinguish uh, between the eternity of its cycles its Manifestation and non manifestation, they alternate, uh, but they alternate going back to infinity and forward into an infinite future. So the uh, Vedic cosmology is totally cyclic. You can think of it as a sine curve which goes to negative infinity and to positive infinity so there is an eternal recurrence of uh, manifestation and non-manifestation non-manifestation i think they call pralaya so this is the vedic the vedic cosmology and the christian cosmology differs radically because The essential point of the Christian cosmology is that time itself will cease. The cosmos will cease. The cosmos is there only for a certain stretch of time. It came into being and it will cease to exist when Christ will fully manifest himself at his second coming. And you know, it makes tremendous amount of sense if you think about it long enough, you realize that from a Christian point of vantage, it cannot be otherwise, because when Christ manifests himself in the fullness of his divinity, it's like turning on an infinite light and the darkness will cease. The polarity of day and night and all these things will cease. When Christ manifests himself in his full divinity, uh, it's like an atom bomb. (laughs) All these little things that we know now will disappear. And uh, incidentally, uh, in the modern Catholic world, top theologians, uh, parted company with orthodoxy over this issue because they are very scientific in their outlook. They have more faith in our scientists, evidently, than in God himself. And so the idea of the parousia is something they could not accept. There's a famous Catholic theologian, I forget his name, It's just as well because he was a heretic, He did not accept the idea of the parousia, and he had the incredible, uh, I don't know, call it chutzpah, to regard that Christ himself was mistaken in certain of his teachings, namely the teachings which uh, deny the eternity of the world, the parousia. So, I think the, pope, the popes at the time were absolutely culpable for not excommunicating. Hans Kühn was the name of the theologian, German theologian who uh, had the audacity to teach that even Christ was not fully, in his human form at least, was not fully uh, enlightened, Because of this teaching of the parousia, which Hans Küng denied on the grounds of quote-unquote science and I regard it as terrible on the part of the popes, whoever was in power at that time, not to excommunicate Hans Küng because Hans Küng's denial of the parousia is heresy. Our Lord himself declared this in unequivocal terms, and you're not a Christian by any stretch of the imagination if you do not fully uh, accept the words of Christ as they have come down in Scripture. Once you start playing loose and, and like that with theologies all over, this is why the Catholic Church today is in deep, Deep problem because it should have excommunicated people like Hans Küng, who were clear heretics, and it didn't. In fact, he retained all his uh, priestly powers, and he was a member uh, of the new of the new external church. That's a catastrophe.
1: When Christ comes for the second time. Will the eternal be gone as well, and the intermediary? Yes, uh, the the second coming of Christ will terminate the cosmos as we know it. So that's the distinction between the eternal and the, the aveternal, is the eternal is one that can be blown out. Yeah. Uh,
0: St. Thomas Aquinas defined... Uh, eternity as the absence of time with the proviso that time can be added onto it. And uh, this was really his way of uh, teaching the tripartite nature of the cosmos. You have the eternal realm, but time can be added onto it which means that below the aviturnal you have the intermediary, where there's time only, and the corporeal. And and incidentally, let me point out this to you, which I find really fascinating. Namely, as soon as I uh, gained what I consider clarity, regarding the tripartite cosmos so the existence of an intermediary level subject to time but not to space i realized that this fact which is nothing more than platonist cosmology and also vedic cosmology they're one and the same platonist cosmology and the vedic cosmology are one and the same and uh integral to this cosmology is the existence of the intermediary realm which is a realm of time alone and the mere existence of such a time only stratum disproves all of einsteinian physics at one stroke it's gone so in a vedic or platonist cosmology there can be no relativistic physics
1: does the will exist only in the intermediary realm well uh
0: i would rephrase the question or rather uh, the question is not well posed because these three realms are not three separate realms. I mean, uh, this uh, the the cosmos is tripartite, which doesn't mean that there are three. Uh, when when I speak of three levels, this is just a way of communicating something that cannot be communicated uh, in 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 any other way. The point is that the three levels of the cosmos constitute one irreducible wholeness in its threefold nature and this is really easy to understand because man you and i and every human being is also tripartite in exactly the same sense we too uh, are made of three levels. In the traditional terminology, this is corpus, anima, spiritus. And clearly, spiritus is the same as the uh, eternal realm. Spiritus is beyond time. Uh, the psychic realm is subject to time, but not to space. And our corporeal realm is obviously corporeal so its subject clearly to time and space so um, we mustn't think and obviously we are one we're one thing we're one organism there are not three I'm, i don't have three parts you you won't find an eternal wolfgang smith and a corporeal wolfgang smith Wolfgang Smith as a person is composed of these three uh, levels but these three levels are one organism and incidentally uh, this is the so to speak the fundamental fact about the Platonist cosmology and this fundamental fact uh, throws a new light on everything And uh, it has tremendous scientific implications, so much so that you cannot have any kind of deeper science that doesn't recognize this tripartite nature. So obviously the physicist knows nothing about it, cannot know anything about it, because the very conceptions needed to define the tripartite cosmos or the tripartite Anthropos uh, entail ontological ideas which cannot really, which are incomprehensible to the physicist, because the physicist deals only with quantitative realities, something that can therefore be described, say, in a differential equation. You can't write a differential equation for uh, spiritus. You can't write the differential equation for uh, the psychic realm. And actually, you can't write the differential equation for the corporeal world either. Because strictly speaking, the physicist, qua physicist, knows nothing about the corporeal world. Nada. Nothing. Because you cannot have a corporeal world consisting only of quantity. Doesn't matter how you want, what kind of quantity, whether you want to talk about a differentiable manifold, or doesn't matter. Mathematics is one thing, and the corporeal world is not a mathematical entity. So, uh, as soon as you have even a little glimmering of the Platonist cosmology, you see how utterly blind our modern intellectuals are whether they are actually scientists capable of working with differential equations is secondary. The point is that practically every intellectual in our day has been metaphysically formed on the basis of mathematical physics. And that means that he is incapable of understanding even the first thing about reality. Uh, Once you see it, you see the tragedy of it. It's a terrible, terrible tragedy. We think that we know more than people ever knew, when in fact, strictly speaking, we know nothing. I would really call it nothing, because uh, these physical models, and it doesn't matter what kind of models, it can be a model with infinite dimensional space. It doesn't matter. The point is you're doing mathematics. You're do- doing differential equations. And what the, 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 the discoveries that you make are the kind that can then, in principle, be tested by a physical experiment. So, wonderful. It's very interesting. I myself was very fascinated by this. But the point is it tells you nothing about the real world in its integrality. And worse than that, it makes you believe that there is nothing
1: other. Right. So on that note, there's a physicist named Brian Green. He was speaking two years ago or so, and he was saying, free will doesn't exist. Why? Well, show me where it is because the physics gives rise to chemistry which gives rise to the cellular which gives rise to your brain and so on so show me if you're going to say something exists point to it where is physics failing When this sheer nonsense i mean it is
0: sad that a human being presumable with good intentions good intelligence lot of education is capable of speaking such utter nonsense because Uh, Look at this table. No physicist has ever understood or will ever understand A, that this table is is brown, and B, that you and I and every other normal human being can see it. Uh, And uh, in a sense you can say that our physicists are the most ignorant people in the whole world, because every child knows that this table is a table. Every child knows that this is hard and and brown and so on. And incidentally, in this connection, I want to say something very, very important. For centuries, ever since the 17th century when our civilization went off the rails, it has been assumed that visual perception is a matter of light hitting the retina setting up currents going into the cortex of the brain etc etc there are 20 or 21 visual centers in the brain and whole libraries have been filled with papers and books uh, describing the results of this experimental work which is very interesting that the trouble is that it tells you nothing about how we actually perceive and Sir Francis Crick you know that one of the discoverers of DNA he then became very fascinated in this this theory of visual perception and at the end of his studies he writes we we see how the brain takes the picture apart. We do not yet see how the brain puts the picture together. And the first half of what he said is obviously true. We, we, we do know a lot about what happens in these neuronal currents uh, emanating from the retina, when it is stimulated. But the whole point is that the brain does not put the picture together again. That is sheer rubbish, sheer, non- sheer nonsense. Uh, anybody who is not deformed in his thinking uh, would, would, would never be stupid enough to say such a thing. The brain takes the picture apart, but it does not put the picture back together again it cannot and the the fact of the matter is that what we see is not inside our head it's outside as every five-year-old child has known ever since the world began this table is not in my brain if it were you'd have to ask in which of the 21 centers the answer is it's not and so Modern um, cognitive psychology uh, refers to this as a binding problem. So it studies visual perception, incredible. I mean, in its own field, it's amazing how how, how they can do it. It's, it's, it's very remarkable and very impressive. The only problem is that it has told us nothing about how we perceive and it has not rectified the fact that known to every child that isn't brain dead, namely that normally we perceive external things. And so uh, my uh, work in cosmology has been tremendously enriched when I discovered somewhere along the line that came rather late after I had written The Quantum Enigma, which was the first essential step I took, there was an American cognitive psychologist named James Gibson. And he discovered early in his career, he had a PhD from Princeton, and he was a professor at Cornell University. And in 1941, he discovered that the retinal image theory of visual perception cannot be true. If we had infinite time, we could talk about that, but let's not. He gave a rigorous proof of the fact that the visual image theory is fundamentally false. And so then he spent about 30 years as an empiricist. He was not a philosopher. He was not a mathematician, he was an empirical cognitive psychologist. And on sound empirical uh, basis, research that lasted close to 30 years, he discovered a theory of visual perception, which he calls the ecological theory of visual perception, because... It turns out that what we visually perceive is not inside the head, it's outside, as every child would have have told you. And when I discovered uh, uh, Gibson, Gibson, I was so happy because what I have to say really hinges upon the fact that we do perceive the external world. And as soon as you recognize that, and as I say every five-year-old child knows more than the people at the Princeton Institute of Advanced Studies because Uh, a normal human being knows that we see the world. And so the, the ontological implications of that are incredible. Because at one stroke, this tells us that what our wisest people speak is utter nonsense. As soon as you realize that this table is brown, you realize that physics is incapable of even conceiving the corporeal world in which we live. What they are dealing with is an abstraction which in fact, it takes a lot of college study and research, etc., and intelligence to understand even that abstraction. But this abstraction is what I call the physical universe, and it is not the same as the corporeal world, which means that in a sense it doesn't exist. Uh, one couldn't lecture or, uh, but let me just say in, in reality it doesn't exist uh, but the interesting thing is that from a platonist point of view in terms of this tripartite cosmos you can understand physics in an entirely new key which is in a sense a very opposite way of f- seeing physics from what our present-day gurus have to offer. So uh, there is a Vedic, Platonist way of understanding physics, and this is what I presented in my last book. And the amazing thing is that I, I really believe that in the first 38 pages of the book, I have answered the The big questions about physics, what is the physical world? And. uh, The main problem of physics today is to understand quantum mechanics and what what differentiates quantum mechanics from classical physics? And how how can we understand ontologically that Physics breaks into these two different parts. Uh, in, in, In one part you have description A, in the other part we have description B. How do these things fit together? Are there two worlds and so forth? Well, I think Feynman said really a very important thing when he said no one understands quantum theory. I think this is true. No one does and no one can understand quantum theory without reference to the true ontology, which, call it Vedic, call it Platonist, is one and the same. And that is a true ontology. It's very simple. Uh, In a sense, every child can understand it. And once you grasp the Platonist ontology, you can understand quantum mechanics it, it 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 comes out naturally on ontological grounds you can see that physics breaks into these two parts because actually the reason is that there are two ways of doing physics there is the classical way which is subcorporeal i i will assume that we know that and So from an ontological perspective, there are two kinds of physics because you can do classical physics, which is subcorporeal and you can do quantum theory, which is transcorporeal. And it follows from the Platonist ontology that in subcorporeal physics, we're dealing with objects that possess being. And in transcorporeal physics, we deal with objects that do not possess being. And the point is that being comes from the eternal plane. It doesn't come from below, from some uh, quirky realm of quantum particles. This is all nonsense. Uh, uh, Our being comes from the eternal realm, and that's why it is being, because it is an irreducible wholeness. And physics cannot deal with irreducible wholes, because it can only deal with wholes which are sums of parts. Uh, For an irreducible whole, you cannot write a differential equation, because if it were described by an, differential equation, it would ipso facto be reducible to its parts. The reason you can write differential equations that mean something is because you're dealing with things that are composite. Do
1: you think this is related to Richard Feynman's sum over paths, that is, reductionism in sum over parts, if it's related to sum over paths? And then further, if the irreducible wholeness and the issues with thinking of reality as a parts that can be summed over is related to how it's infamously difficult to make rigorous the Feynman path integral.
0: Okay. That's a wonderful question, which I would like to answer in the following way. There's no question that Feynman was a genius. But his impact upon physics has been on the whole disastrous because the great physicists from the old European culture were all in varying degrees schooled in philosophy and Going back to, they were somehow touched by traditions going right back to at least Aristotle. Feynman comes from the New World, and he was unquestionably a pragmatist. And his main contribution to physics was QED, quantum electrodynamics, And quantum electrodynamics is something that doesn't quite add up. It took a genius to think of it. There's no question about that. But it isn't all there. You have this problem of uh, infinities cropping up and uh, I think it's called renormalization is the way you cope with that. In other words, what it really amounts to is that sometimes you succeed and sometimes you don't succeed. And when you don't succeed, you renormalize and then you succeed. Now nobody has ever given a mathematical justification for this renormalization. It's a bit of hocus pocus, and. Uh, Richard, was, uh, Richard Feynman was a master at making it work. But this was pragmatism and not science. And uh, there is a contemporary German physicist who's written very good books about that. Uh, and he's pointed out that Richard Feynman has had... Is it Anziger, by the way? Yes, Hans uh, Alexander Unzicker. Uh, he's a very bright physicist.
1: He's going to come on to the Theories of Everything channel. Ah. You should note that there was a physics and consciousness explication contest for Toe. Links to all those videos are in the description. Unziker was a winner. If you ever want to speak with him, too, you're more than welcome to come on.
0: We have been in contact, and I like to be in contact. He's brilliant. But uh, even though we agree... Uh, For example, what he has to say about Richard Feynman, I'm in perfect agreement with that. And I am indebted to Alexander Unziger for helping to clarify this for me. Uh, uh, You disagree on Einstein? We disagree completely on Einstein. He has a reverence for Einstein. Oh, yes, he has a special reverence for Einstein. And he believes not only that Einsteinian physics is true, but he somehow feels that Einstein has shown a new... Uh, Einstein, according to Unziger, is a presiding genius of latter-day physics.
1: You were saying that Feynman brought pragmatism to physics, and this was... Yeah, uh, and
0: uh, some of the great... Physicists from earlier times have remarked upon this. And Unsinger, for example, in his latest book, in fact, it was just published beginning of this year, uh, he uh, quotes some of these early names in physics uh, in their criticism of QED. Uh, QED uh, seems not really to be a solid branch of physics. Uh, it is true, you can, with a little hocus-pocus, and Feynman was a master at that, with a little hocus-pocus, you can get the right answer to some very interesting problems. But physics is more than getting numbers to agree with experiment. It is a question of there's a bit of philosophy in it. There's a bit of ontology in it. At least there was always the game. I mean, there was always the ob- objective of physics, to understand nature. And uh, the early physicists all thought in these terms, they wanted to know what really makes nature work. And uh, it was in in that quest that they produced the physics that they produced. To Feynman, uh, it was all a question of uh, playing games and getting things to work. But getting things to work is one thing and physics is another. And Unziger would say uh, that uh, Feynman helped to corrupt physics because actually when you look at something like our Churn, the Particle Physics Center, uh Unziger wrote a book about Chern where he sh- he shows how absolutely absurd physics a la churn has become. Physics a la churn is no longer physics, it's no longer science. And it's a very expensive game they're playing. But it, it physics ala churn has actually uh rendered uh particle physics an absurdity it is a reductio ad absurdum of particle physics and uh, i very much recommend uh Unziger's i think first book which is devoted to this panorama of CERN particle physics à la CERN it's absurd
1: yeah it's CERN like
0: CERN yeah, C-E-R. it's uh, an acronym for the french name centre energie research research uh, is its a uh, nuclear physics center which it took a hundred countries to finance, etc., etc. It's one of the world's marvels, but at the same time, it is a reductio ad absurdum of particle physics.
1: This question comes from Matthew Wyden again, a fan of yours, and has watched plenty of your work, and he asks, Bernardo Castrup interprets the fall in the Garden of Eden as a fall into meta-consciousness, i.e. becoming aware of our own awareness rather than simply being aware of present reality. Is this relatable to a fall in the corporeal realm?
0: I must tell you in all frankness that I have very little interest in this kind of speculation. Uh, I feel that if you want to Uh, approach um, these great truths, the truth of Christianity and the Judeo-Christian tradition, you cannot do it by starting from the contemporary Weltanschauung. You cannot do it strictly speaking as a man of the 21st century. You have to do it, you have to go back to the basic the basis, uh, our scriptures and our early Christian commentaries and so on, and f- feel your way into this world to try to understand it basically, and I think this applies not only to Kastrop, it's, uh, it's, it's sort of a typical thing. Uh, we have a lot of intellectuals today who are basically respectful of Uh, the great traditions which is in itself wonderful because the typical thing is just the opposite the typical thing in our if you go to our universities and you get out of them still believing in God you are one of the chosen few because the the thrust of it all is I call it satanic because I think it basically it is they are on the opposite side uh, But the people that you are referring to now, there's a whole group of them. uh, It is very much to their credit that they are respectful of the Christianity and the other great traditions and they want to understand. They think that there's truth there and they want to understand it. But they want to understand it, so to speak, uh, starting out, more or less from the contemporary Weltanschauung. And I think this is absolutely the wrong place to start because if we were in any way schooled or versed in the true metaphysics and the true Christianity, let us say. We would realize that the contemporary Weltanschauung is nonsense. It's a disease. It's it, it's uh, and it's a little bit like poison. I mean, it it poisons you, and so the idea of uh, interpreting Christianity in uh, terms that connect with our contemporary physicists or our contemporary psychologists or whatever you find in the contemporary culture is uh, in a sense to lose before you've even started. you cannot understand Christianity from the direction of physics or any other contemporary strand of thought, whether it's psychology or what have you uh, where. Uh, in a completely different culture and the only way to gain access to christianity is to start from the beginning that means on a scriptural basis there's the old and the new testament and there are the commentaries of the great christian teachers of saint augustine and the saint thomas aquinas that's how you can learn And once you have a certain insight into Christianity, you can, of course, uh, engage in a a dialogue, if you will, with contemporary thinkers. You can uh, listen to what they have to say and explain what is right and what is not right and help your fellow of man, find their way into the traditional teaching. But you can't get into the traditional teaching uh, from the direction of
1: contemporary thought. There's no way. Is it more accurate to say that the corporeal realm is a reduction of the avaternal or an expression of the avaternal?
0: Well, the actually correct answer, I think, to this question is that whatever has any kind of being in the corporeal world, for example, this table, uh, originates in the ave So if you ask, what is this table, what is it... uh, the contemporary person will start t- talking about atoms and this and that, which is has nothing to do with metaphysics. This is something else entirely. Metaphysically, if you want to uh, understand what this table actually is, what the being is that manifests as this table, you are led unquestionably, back to the eternal realm. Because uh, what is not illusory, what is not perishable, what is actually real in this table, and there must be something like that, otherwise even the illusion of the table couldn't arise. So what is real, what what is actual being is, located or originates in the aviturnal plane.
1: In the same way that we say a baby originates from a mother, we don't say a baby is a reduction of the mother or a baby is an expression of the mother. Is it similar like that or different? I would say it's a little different because uh,
0: the connection that I was trying to verbalize or somehow express is purely vertical. It's ontological. and of course, the only way we can understand it in a human way is to add the fiction to spatialize. You say, all right, let this plane be corporeal, and up here you have another plane is aveternal. So we, we sort of make a mental picture of it, uh, which is not really. Uh, what we want to express, but it's a means of expressing. So in other words, we must add a little bit of uh, falsity in order to express the metaphysical truth.
1: This also comes from Matthew Wyden. These are wise questions coming from him. What do you think of the patristic formulation that love is the coexistence of unity and multiplicity? Well, I would
0: have to really think about this a little bit. Uh, on the whole, I shy away from trying to intellectually understand the uh, uh, deep metaphysical, theological, theological truths for example the teachings of Christ as you read them in the gospels uh, I I don't really try to understand this this type of statement uh, the way I, uh, one might want to understand a differential equation or a mathematical theorem by analyzing it and so on I I think that uh, it is preferable to approach these things, figuratively speaking, from the heart rather than the intellect, Uh, because you're trying to understand the greater in terms of the lesser. It doesn't really make that much sense So I think there is a great deal of uh, this kind of thinking going on. It is somehow an attempt to reach the higher planes without leaving the lower. Uh, I tend to be skeptical to many of the so-called commentaries about deep metaphysical or Christian ideas given by learned men of our day, because uh, these metaphysical truths have been known and communicated for thousands of years, and I like to approach them uh, using the language, if you will, of the, uh, the great sages of prior times. In the case of Christianity, we have this arena of brilliant and same time holy and sagacious men and women and i am perfectly happy to approach these mysteries in the very terms given to us in the traditional form Uh, the the idea of say uh, suppose somebody uh, writes an essay about uh, some christian topic whether it's love or life eternal or whatever it be uh, using analogies from modern science, something about uh, quantum particles or God knows what. I don't feel drawn to that because these ideas have been transmitted from master to disciple for more than 2,000 years now, and so we have a wonderful language uh, that we can use by way of approaching or entering into these higher spheres of thought. To to be honest with you, that language that I was now referring to uh, was given to us by the great saints and mystics of the church, a Thomas Aquinas, a Meister Eckhart, a St. Augustine. And we have that available. Then why should I listen to Professor so and so, who somehow approaches Christian themes, Christian mysteries, one can say, uh, using ideas or terminology from quantum theory or cognitive psychology and so forth, I feel no need for that. And I am skeptical about it too. In other words, not only are the truths of Christianity sacred, but in a sense, the words, the language, and the conceptions which have uh, which go back to the, uh, the patristic era, uh, have a sacredness of their own. And so I, A, tend to be skeptical about modern-day gurus who will use a completely different language. Uh, I feel no need for that. And as I say, I'm, I tend to be skeptical that it's really going to work. Because not only is the sacred truths sacred the means of expression are also sacred the very words that have fallen from the lips say of the apostles are sacred and uh, why should i listen to professor so-and-so i'd much rather listen to saint paul or saint augustine Saint Maximus I mean they are the people who understood these things, they are the people who attained them also in varying degrees in their own life why should I listen to some of the professor from University of Chicago what does he know
1: and why do I need him Professor thank you for spending so much time with me what's next for you What's next for me, my friend,
0: is to prepare myself to enter into the life beyond this one, to enter into the next phase of life. Christianity and every true religion has always taught that one should prepare oneself for the end. One of the great uh, insights from the Vedic tradition is, the Vedic tradition declares that the natural life of man uh, divides into four stages. Uh, Brahmacharya, this is where a young man prepares himself to enter life uh, through study, uh, he's expected to live a celibate life. It's a sort of an ascetic life. And next comes Grihastya, the life of uh, married life. So the man marries, he founds a family, and he has an employment and he supports his family. This is the second stage of life according to the Vedic tradition. The third stage is, I think they call it vanaprasta. I I think it means a forest life. The idea is that the children are grown up and they've married themselves. So the man and his wife uh, enter a new stage of life, which is a life of, they, they call it forest life because it's a very simple life. It involves little outward activity. It's a matter of preparing for the life to come. And then the fourth stage of life is called sannyas. And this is something very Vedic, is foreign to our Western way of thinking, but according to the Vedic tradition, this is when both the man and the woman uh, leave all attachments to the world and totally fix their spirit upon God. So uh, the, the, the extreme way of living that life of sannyas, and this is actually, I, I saw people living like that. It, it was still going on. You retire completely from the world. And you give you a whole day to prayer and contemplation. A uh, very few people in the Western world uh, can even conceive of such a thing. When I was traveling in India half a century excuse me half a century ago, it was still visible. There, there was It was rare, yes. And you had to go far away from New Delhi and Calcutta and any place where the western world has so much as touched because the western world is poison in that regard so this is the ancient Vedic culture we can't duplicate it here uh, but I'm just mentioning that the principle applies to us too the principle is that at the end of our life there should be a transitional phase where we uh, turn our attention away from the world and the cares of the world, and we live a life as much as possible in prayer, solitude, contemplation. I, I think the principle is therefore everyone, everyone will, will do so to the extent that he or she can. And actually, from a higher point of view, all the earlier phases of our life should really, in truth, be a preparation for that fourth stage, which is itself a preparation for the true life, which is life eternal. So, but I I think only someone who can really be called a saint is able to in a very real way, live up to these ideals. Uh, but I think, even though, uh, we should know these ideals and try to live up to it as we can. I think God, in his mercy, will accept this. Thank you so much, Wolfgang. Thank you. Well, I think you could... I regard it as a great privilege to meet you, to to spend a few days uh, getting to know each other, and I wish you all that is good. I think your apostolate, and that's the right word, it is an apostolate that you have. Your apostolate is a, a very noble, very important apostolate, because what the world, Needs today almost more than anything else is the kind of thing that you are attempting to bring about for example the understanding of our great traditions the understanding of why we are really in deep trouble today It, it takes a certain spiritual eye to see that uh, not everybody does. And in fact, the more you are associated with universities and other uh, contemporary institutions, the more you are drawn into the very opposite. Uh, so, your apostolate is so important. Your in the service of God, in the service of religion, and there's nothing greater than that. Nothing.
1: Thank you. I I hope to I hope we can live up to ten percent of that. Thank you. Well, wonderful I
0: I I'm very happy about today's the questions that you raised. They were excellent questions and that's a big part in getting a good answer. A big part in getting a good answer is to ask a good question. And that's not an easy thing.
1: The podcast is now concluded. Thank you for watching. If you haven't subscribed or clicked on that like button, now would be a great time to do so, as each subscribe and like helps YouTube push this content to more people. You should also know that there's a remarkably active Discord and subreddit for Theories of Everything, where people explicate toes, disagree respectfully about theories, and build, as a community, our own toes. Links to both are in the description. Also, I recently found out that external links count plenty toward the algorithm, which means that when you share on Twitter, on Facebook, on Reddit, etc., it shows YouTube that people are talking about this outside of YouTube, which in turn greatly aids the distribution on YouTube as well. If you'd like to support more conversations like this, then do consider visiting theoriesofeverything.org. Again, it's support from the sponsors and you that allow me to work on Toe full-time. You get early access to ad-free audio episodes there as well. Every dollar helps far more than you may think. Either way, your viewership is generosity enough. Thank you.